Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Emma Seligman, a writer and director whose first feature, Shiva Baby, just arrived on Digital Tiff Bell Lightbox last Friday and goes into wider VOD release across North America this Friday, April 2nd. It's a very clever character study starring Rachel Sennett as a New Yorker trapped in an afternoon shiva with her prying family, her ex-girlfriend, her current sugar daddy, and his wife and baby. It's painfully astute about a lot of things while also being a very funny comedy. You should give it a look. Emma wanted to talk about another directorial debut, 2000's Keeping the Faith, which marked the first feature from Edward Norton, who also stars in the film as a Manhattan priest opposite Ben Stiller as his best friend, a rabbi. Their lifelong friendship is thrown for a loop when their childhood friend, Anna, played by Jenna Elfman, comes back into their lives and they both find themselves attracted to her. There's a version of this movie that's just a wacky comedy, but neither Norton nor screenwriter Stuart Blumberg was interested in going there. Instead, they came up with a much more measured look at religion, relationships, and identity than anyone would have expected, but they still kept it funny. This is someone else's movie. I love this movie so much, and it was the first time I think I ever saw a Jewish portrayal on screen. I didn't, I didn't watch Curb really, but even with Curb, the Jewishness of it, I mean, it's all in the humor, but it's not, you don't see them living their Jewish lives. And um, I don't think I really understood as a child that like, I didn't feel seen on screen, like, you know, conceptually, I was six when that came out and I watched it, I think on like VHS when it was available, you know, to rent from Blockbuster. and I think it just had a big effect on me, one, because it's a great movie um, and has so many great performances in it. Um, but two, I was like, oh, there's a rabbi. And like, you know, like I, I could relate to it from a child's perspective, obviously not. And I watched so many romantic comedies with my mom and sister growing up, like, you know, like many other people, like I even as a kid loved like, you know, when Harry Met Sally or just Nora Ephron movies, et cetera. And um, sure. so I was like, oh, we get to watch one that's like, like me, like us, like that's us having a romantic comedy. Um, So it meant a lot to me. And looking back, I'm just, it was, it's so nice. And I'm so glad that I got to see that as a kid. Um, uh, But it's also just every time I watch it, it holds up. I think it's so funny and I can't believe it for so long. It was Edward Norton's only movie he directed. Um, And just so many things about it that I'm, I'm sure we can get into, but yeah. um, Um, yeah. That's what I'm here for. The, uh, (laughs) and absolutely the, the sense of Norton as a director, because this is the year after Fight Club. He had been mm-hmm. doing all these intense, um, <laughs> super masculine or masculine adjacent, you know, like interpretations of, of, I think American History X had come out the year before. Yeah. And it was just like, that's who he was. Mm-hmm. And to see him make a film where he could just be gentle and fun and charming was a real, it was a very pleasant surprise, but it felt like the kind of movie you make when you really have something to prove to yourself as an artist. Yeah. And the fact that he directed it. Yeah. And that it's so different from his subsequent effort 19 years later, it feels like just, it's got a, a lot of first films. How can I describe this? A lot of first features have a first novel kind of feeling where you just get the sense that the filmmaker is putting everything they have into this one shot in case they don't get to make another. I mean, you've just yeah. been through that yourself. <laughs> and and Shiva Baby is incredibly personal in a way that feels like you might not want to revisit that or, or to go into that zone again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like that's it, very accurate. But it doesn't feel yeah. purgative, right? Like it feels comprehensive. Yeah, and, thank and, you. 
and well, not at all. And, and keeping the faith kind of does the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I never even thought about that, that like he hadn't done a role like that before, which makes perfect sense when you say it. Cause at the time I wasn't like, ah, oh, a real game changer for Edward Norton when I was six. But, um, <laughs> Uh, I think about that now so much from a directing perspective of like, oh, wouldn't it be so cool to see this actor do this instead of everything they've done before um, mm-hmm. and to just flip the sort of um, the the role that they usually get. Um, so that's so interesting when you put it like that. Yeah. And to just do a different genre, to do a rom-com. I also think I rewatched it again with a friend last year and she was like, did Edward Norton and Ben Stiller ever do a movie again together? Cause they have the best comedic chemistry, like just the best. Like I, I can't believe that they just didn't start doing movies all the time together, but I don't know if Edward Norton was like, that's the only comedy I'm going to do. Um, but I mean, he's in, he's in a few of Wes Anderson's films and, and that's true. Weirdly. So is Stiller, but not together. Like there's no yeah. overlap. Neither of them is in, or sorry, no. Um, Norton is in, Moonrise Kingdom, but I don't think Stiller is. No, and then Ben Stiller was in Royal Ten Bombs, but I don't think Edward Norton was in that. No, um, no, he wasn't. But it's yeah, but the, yeah, it's oh, it's ahead. a pleasure to watch them. They are just those the long scenes where they sell this long friendship, this this like lifelong yeah. friendship, and then just sort of nudge each other and riff together. It, <laughs> again, from somebody like Norton, who you know apparently very method, very serious as an actor. Um, there are stories of him. I guess the term is being difficult on the Incredible Hulk mm-hmm. in Toronto, but um, <laughs> just the idea that he was invested so deeply in what the Hulk would do and things like that, it gets a little silly to have those kind of conversations. I mean, I'm sure in the moment they're valid for the actor, but it feels like, you know, the old joke about Ray Wellston on My Favorite Martian being too serious for the show and saying a Martian wouldn't do that and still being right because <laughs> he knew the character well enough. But there's none of that here. And there's a there's a gentleness and a like a generosity in the way he shoots other actors. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, it occurred to me the first time through, because I would I guess I would have been 32 when I first saw it, that there's no way he can win as the actor. His character is set up to lose because a rabbi can get married and a priest can't. It really is that simple, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the trick of the film is that for two hours, we don't really think about it. Because mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. kind of want to see where it's going to go. And there's something to that, that chemistry and that charm. Definitely. I mean, I think that with the success of, this is totally different, but if you watch the season two of Fleabag, you you're, you still have the same question mark yeah. and then it ends up going the other way, not to spoil it. So you're like, well, uh-oh. Um, so you do feel genuinely invested in his journey um, in terms of his character, like if it, if it could happen. Um, but I think that... Yeah, I just am show, show. I'm, I think looking back, I'm so um, taken with how well it's shot in terms of how we captured the performances um, and the details. Like, it's not a particularly, you know, like, it's a romantic comedy and it's, it's shot so, but it's still very um, uh, just specific. And the just every moment feels so well crafted um, in between the characters, whether it's a very vulnerable, sweet moment or whether it's just a, a really funny one. Um, and the pacing is so good. Um, I just think he was able to capture such detail and such a perfect, nice, small amount of schmaltz. I think that's really hard to nail in a romantic comedy. And I think that there's so much sweetness in this movie without it uh, leaning into sappiness. Yeah. Well, I've, we just did an episode on you've got mail, uh, mm. which I 
I have a conflicted relationship with it. I love the Upper West Side, and I think there are a lot of details that she captures properly, but you know, so much of it now is based on negging and cruelty and all the things that shouldn't be funny in a romantic comedy. And and it's dependent on the relationship between Hanks and Ryan to sell it. This movie, it's funny. I, I never thought about it in terms of representation um, Mm -hmm. and the value of it, but you're right at the time, especially uh, rom-coms were really waspy and Mm -hmm. they somehow always ended up at Christmas, even if it started in the summer. Yeah. Even Nora Ephron movies. I mean, it didn't matter. Jews have been directing rom-coms forever. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) But they also go out of their way not to make them ethnically Jewish, right? Like you can have, Mm -hmm. it's like the shot of friends of Ross cleaning out a menorah during the Christmas episode just to acknowledge, you know, we know, we know. But uh, it, it happens in the UK as well, where Christmas has become a cultural event rather than a religious Mm -hmm. um, holiday. Mm -hmm. And on revisiting Keeping the Faith, the thing that amazes me about it is how the Judaism doesn't become exotic and it's not strange and alien through the, through the lens of a romantic comedy. It's just there. Mm -hmm. And it's there in a really simple, casual way that, I had neither of us had ever seen before. I yeah. I don't know that I mean short of I mean what am I thinking of? There were movies in the eighties like The Chosen, which are all about how cloistered and weird uh, Orthodox Jews are. Which you know probably, but uh, <laughs> I was just gonna say there's movies that I think beforehand were like uber Jewish. Where yeah, like it does feel maybe maybe exotified or maybe just like like screaming that this is a Jewish movie, like Yentl or. I mean, obviously, like Fiddler on the Roof, et cetera. Um, but yeah, this just feels like a regular old. These these characters seem believable and grounded and and relatable. Um, and you don't, I you know, even as someone who's like a agnostic Jew or just not religious or not Jewish at all, like you don't. There's nothing you need to understand about Judaism specifically, which I think is a real um, uh, testament to the screenwriter Stuart Blumberg, but also Edward Edward Norton for not being Jewish and taking in a you know, like a, I guess a Gentile perspective yeah. on this film. Cause you don't really need to know anything in order, but you're just watching this rabbi live his life. And I, I think that's so cool. And I think that like sort of dispelling the myth that every rabbi is like an old man with like a white long beard. Like, I love that he's just like this young hotshot and like all the moms are trying to set him up. Like, that's so cool to see someone like living their best Jewish life and also being like a hot commodity in their community and be attractive. And I think it just sort of um, goes against sort of at at least at the time, but I think even still we think of conceptually when we think of like Jewish stereotypes, I don't think we often think of Jewish characters. Um, uh, Maybe it's changing now because there is a lot more representation, but I don't think we see Jewish characters as necessarily like hot or sexy or attractive, Um, you know, like a hot lead in a romantic comedy. I think it it was different. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the defining form of the Jewish characters and certainly in 2000 was the Woody Allen movie, which, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a million reasons we can write a lot of those off, but (laughs) one of them, I think, and and Norton had just made one, right? Like he was in, that was the one pop from from his filmography. He's in everyone says, I love you. And it's not his fault. (laughs) That movie movie just, it's conceptually just doomed. Um, But there is, I remember there's one scene where he falls over a table during a dance number, gets right back up and keeps going. And I thought, oh, that's how you do that. That's how you recover. Like, that's how you play a real person in a, 
in a fantasy landscape. It was like an early sign that he always knows what he's doing, which I find really interesting about him because he'll pick roles mm-hmm. that he doesn't seem right for and still find a way to make it un, um, to make it impossible to think that anyone else could have played it, right? Yeah. And yeah. he does the same here because that shouldn't work. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, the whole point, I mean, again, the whole point of the script, I think, is the dare, the joke of a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar. Yes, yes, it is. It is. And it's challenging it to be a grounded, real story that can carry a two-hour film or an hour and a half film. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're like, Edward Norton plays anytime I tell a friend about it. I'm like, so Edward Norton's a priest and Ben Still is a rabbi and they're fighting over their childhood best friend. And they're like, this doesn't seem real. This seems like you just made this up. <laughs> um, but he, again, I know nothing about, not that I know nothing about Christianity, but I don't really know what it, I had never taken an interest in what it would mean to be a priest. Um, and he, his character is equally just relatable and chill. I think the opening sequence does that so well when they just, they really ground the whole story and invite the audience into their friendship um, by showing them how they grew up best friends and getting more into their own religions. and then. You see them both sort of working the crowds of their congregations, um, you know, in their own way. Um, in And it's finding humor in the specificity of both religions. Um, and then there's, of course, like that montage ends with them, like walking down the streets of New York, like in slow-mo, like to, I think like a Santana song, like yeah. um, with sunglasses on and leather jackets. And you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. These are just two cool dudes who are like running their sort of they're doing the same thing um yeah i don't know what the point of all that was but (laughs) well i mean it it grounds it in cliche without using ethnic specificity which i think Mm -hmm. is really interesting like you know the joke of the cool priest or the joke of the 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 rabbi who's down with everybody but (laughs) but it's shaped to their personas so well because stiller i mean he it's it's kind of been a weird journey for Ben Stiller on his career. Like he's gone places that I would not have expected him to go uh, from the guy who started out as a, like an awkward Saturday night live supporting player. And then a comic who, I mean, he worked with Bob Odenkirk and David Cross on, on the Ben Stiller show in like 92. If it wasn't for him, they probably wouldn't have gone on to make Mr. Show. And he has had such a seismic impact on so many different aspects of comedy but a lot of it was pulled off into the night of the museum movies and the kids stuff that he does mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and the Zoolander things. Like he feels like he's been, he could have been a leading man, but he trapped himself in this comedy box. And every time he tries to push out of it in any way, in any direction, working with Anderson or working on something like the secret life of Walter Mitty, which while flawed, he is great in. And, yeah. and he made that yeah. himself. Like he had to because yeah. no one else would. Yes. I just find that, like this role is the one that I th- I suspect he's kind of the least comfortable with because it's the closest to who he is. Mm. You know, like a Jewish kid with a famous parent. In this case, it's just because it's Anne Bancroft, but still. Like he, <laughs> he deliberately cast, uh, sorry, Norton put Stiller and Bancroft together because of that legacy, that connection, because Ben Stiller is the child of a famous Jewish entertainer couple yeah. as well. That's so interesting. I didn't even, I didn't think about that. I actually... I don't know. I think that when you're talking about his sort of like um, being sort of pigeonholed in his comedy shtick and not being able to sort of really go beyond that, Mm -hmm. I feel like this is one of the few, if not the only Ben Stiller role I can think of 
um, that feels incredibly grounded and like, like he's a real person and he's not just a, he's not just doing his shtick. I love when he's doing, I love Zoolander. I love Tropic Thunder. Like, you know, um, he's, he's obviously hilarious and there's a million movies that I'm missing and maybe there's other ones where he's incredibly grounded as well, but this, this not too many. No. I, yeah. And I think also just as romantic lead, like I genuinely care for his relationship between him and Jenna Elfman. And I, um, even as I get older and older and can like, you know, become, I can start relating them to them more as adults and not as a child or a teenager. Um, I see so much like beauty in their relationship. And I think that that is, I don't think I've seen that from him since. And I don't think I've seen it from him before. And I don't know. I, I guess I, you, you could be right that he, this is the closest to who he is, but I also think, I think sometimes comedic actors are looking for something that's going to be more interesting or grounding or, or sweet or genuine. So I'm almost like, I wonder if it's his favorite role. And I, I don't know. Also, it doesn't feel like at least today with my, I mean, with my friends, like who are all like the same age as me, um, they're like, what is that movie? And I'm like, how does no one know about this movie? Like, it's so, it's just, it's just funny to me. Um, but maybe that's why, you know, you're right. He turned to directing and had to direct himself and Walter Mitty and, and um, whatnot. And is now doing quite, is producing his whole stuff through Red Hour and doing much darker material as a director, like um, the mini series with uh, um, Patricia Arquette and. Um, oh yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Escape from. Uh, I know. I keep wanting to say Cannamore. That's not right. Um, yeah. I keep wanting to say Guantanamo and that's not right either. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, he's uh, been. I, I wonder if maybe working with Bombac has kind of nudged him in that direction too. That's a good point. Actually, never mind. Greenberg. <laughs> uh, while we're young, okay. All these yeah. other crazy grounded comedies coming back to me. Never mind. Uh, no, but they're not like yeah. they're not that frequent, right? And it's it's only two films in a decade. So he seems the to Meyerowitz be, stories. Oh, too. the Meyerowitz story. Okay, three films yeah. in a decade. I forgot about that because yeah. it was a Netflix thing. Um, mm-hmm. Right. That's, yeah. That's my own weird thing. But that's no, it. He, but the, like he'll only do it for people he trusts, I think, which makes mm-hmm. it also yeah. kind of an interesting bargain. Because wouldn't it be so frustrating for him if he was in like a dramedy and it made no money or not and it made no money, but it just bombed. Like, I feel like to a certain degree, him and Adam Sandler like um, represent a sort of uh, age in, you know, comedians having or leading comedy actors having a shtick that, okay, if this is cheesy and it gets bad reviews, it's a comedy, so it's still going to be shtick and whatever. But I guess, like, what would be so much worse is them trying drama or them trying, like, you know, very, very dramatic comedy um, and it not doing well. (laughs) That's way more of a risk. Um, So you're right. He probably trusts Baumbach and Anderson, or I think he's only worked once with Wes Anderson, but um, probably trusts them to to go there for himself. uh, but but isn't as willing to do so other with others. I, I think now actors have there's way more flexibility. I feel like I look back to that like 2000 2010 time or or even earlier, way before then. Like a comedy actor would do comedy and a dramatic actor would do drama. And I think now it's way more fluid, um, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, and TV and movies have blurred as well. So that a film like Keeping the Faith, which was like your classic example of a mid-range studio picture that they just don't make anymore. Mm -hmm. That would have been, I mean, it's an, I think it would probably be easier to watch now. 
than it might have been oh, yeah. at the time, right? In a movie theater, just because our expectations have changed. And now it's a small film about people doing stuff. Like the, mm-hmm. the definition of the thing you watch at home or that, that has come to define the home viewing or that did, I don't know, like the pandemic ruined everything there. But, uh, <laughs> whatever, yeah, whatever first uh, sort of established that change. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder like if movies come came out now, what what the res- what where it would fit best and if it would make way more money or if it more people would see it or if it would be less and I'm not sure with this one um it means so much to me on a personal level that I don't really know other than when I talk to people like you who have appreciation for it um I've shown it to other friends and they're like yeah I don't know um and I'm like what <laughs> what so sometimes I think I'm taking crazy pills and it's just me <laughs> that thinks it it holds up so so well um but I don't know I also feel like cinephiles generally don't have that much of a um appreciation for rom-coms I think comedies in general are incredibly hard to craft in terms of all the mechanisms behind it. Um, You don't get the luxury of sitting in a shot for however long because it's a drama or because it's experimental or whatever it is. Um, So I think in general, comedies are really hard to construct and aren't really valued in the like indie cinephile community. And I definitely think rom-coms are at the tail end of it and aren't, aren't really valued um, as such. So, you know, I don't know. I really don't know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I think of it now as, like a weird fork in the road for all three actors for mm. there's another direction they could have all gone in. And this is the movie that points you there. It shows you it would have been possible. Like mm-hmm. um, we haven't really talked about Jenna Elfman very much, but she's great. Like it's, yeah, she's fantastic. It's she's a so hard good. part. And she manages yeah. to make it like it's sympathetic and believable. And she disappears for a while and we miss her. We actually feel mm-hmm. the absence. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. She's um, I think that her role, you know, nothing against the screenplay or the screenwriter, but you could so easily hate her for like trying to like egg both of them on uh, or just sort of like be curious about Edward Norton's character. And she makes it so that you completely understand what she's doing and what she's going through. And um, the horrible position she's been put in with the the Ben Stiller character. I think, I think that there's, it's so funny because like, you know, the reason I had the Diana Angron character in Shiva is because of that age old stereotype of like, Jewish women not liking when Jewish men marry shiksas or blonde, you know, waspy princesses. Yeah. So you're set up to hate her, you know, as <laughs> um, in, in, uh, in keeping the faith. And, and yet you just start to care so much about um, her, their relationship. And it honestly, as a Jewish person makes me think a lot about, I'm like the future, like what it means to bury someone not Jewish or, you know, like what that, where the, the, where you need to meet in the middle if that happens and et cetera. Um, she's so good. And then, yeah, after that, you didn't, you didn't see her in anything until she was on that show accidentally on purpose, I think. Right. Oh, yeah, um, that's right. I didn't watch that, but I, but I, I'm just sort of shocked that she didn't get more after keeping the faith. Cause I just think she's so good. Yeah. There's a so. weird, kind of blurring with between her and Taya Leone. I think they were up for a lot of the same roles. And then. Yeah, I guess I can see that they look very similar. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. And that makes me sad watching it. Cause I'm like, she, what happened? Like she could have been so, so celebrated. Um, yeah. And Edward Norton could have done comedy and Ben Stiller could have done 
more grounded rom-coms, grounded comedies, just just movie about people, like you said. And and he did end up doing that a little bit with Greenberg and um uh while we're young, the the Bombach movies, etc. So. Yeah. I wonder if it does boil down to a question of trust. Like you have to feel comfortable after a long enough period of time not doing this sort of thing to trust someone to get you to to protect you when you try again. Yeah. And I think at that time, so many, the film industry so entirely relied on reviews. It still does, but the critics, and I think if the critics said, I mean, I'm sure about, I mean, actually I look back and I'm, it only got 69% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm like, I don't know if people were willing to necessarily see him in such a genuinely sweet, normal person role that didn't have like a whole stick to it. I don't know why some people didn't like it. Maybe they thought it was cheesy or et cetera. But um, I think, I thank God that we're in the time now where it's, what do the people want? Like, what do, what does everyone else think besides the critics? And I, I bet it's a lot more nerve wracking. It would have been a lot more nerve wracking by then to back back then to do something different. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I can certainly for Norton to just direct a movie at all. I think <laughs> I'm trying to remember if Stiller had already, Oh, of course he had, he made the cable guy like a few years earlier, but and then Zoolander, or was that Zoolander was a year after? ahead? Yeah, it was got on its it, way. It. Zoolander was one of the 9/11 delays. That's the only reason I remember that. I remember that too when I was six because <laughs> it got <laughs> horrible reviews, and then I think it it got more successful as time went on as a sort of cult classic. Anyway, yeah, yeah like the Cable Guy. It's it's one of those things where Stiller he just he. I've always been amazed that he has any mainstream success at all because his instincts are so weird and, and specific. <laughs> and it's not a like, it's not a slight. I think he does really interesting work. Mm-hmm. But every time he has a real hit, or you know, like a Madagascar or or mm-hmm. the Night at the Museum movies, he's just like, really, he wanted to do that. And then I realized mm-hmm. that's so he can fund whatever else he wants to do. Yeah, I mean, I think Tropic Thunder's a little more mainstream, quote unquote. But the way oh, yeah. that the but the choices in that movie, like of Tom Cruise as like the like Jewish, like hairy agent, like and like you can't recognize him until you reveal at the of course that was a huge surprise. Yeah. And then, you know, the controversial choice looking back, it hasn't aged well of uh, Robert Downey Jr. playing the Australian actor in blackface. Um, but even <laughs> just all of his choices in that movie were so specific and bold and weird even it's it's a mainstream film and yet there's all these like very interesting choices within it um so yeah you're right you're right you know um that and I think that's very common to take on roles where you know it's going to make a lot of money and you're going to do the thing you're good at um so that you can go make whatever you want to do Oh yeah. I mean, I can't certainly can't blame him for having a career, um, <laughs> but there is that. I, and it's funny. Like I realize now we're spending so much time talking about Stiller when it's Norton's film. And it's just mm. kind of a testament to the way that Norton gives him the spotlight and, and just sort of yes. seeds the space to make a movie. That's not about him. Um, yeah. As opposed to something like motherless Brooklyn, where he's shouldering the whole picture and you get the sense that it's a, a project that's very important to him, but also that he be the center of it. Which yeah, which is usually the way it goes when directors hmm. act or directors when actors direct for the first time. I mean, I I feel like yeah, usually I'm thinking about when Ben Affleck, his first movie he wasn't in at all, like Gone Baby Gone, right. and his brother starred in it. And then the next one was The Town, where he was the lead, and then and then Argo, where he was like fully the lead, where it was not less of an well, it was an ensemble, but he was the one. Oh yeah, you know, he's the center. He's the center. Um 
Yeah, it is so interesting that Edward Norton did that. I think it sort of shows the lack of ego a little bit to say, I want to take the really strong supporting role, um, the, the guy who doesn't get the girl. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I also feel like it makes sense. Like you said, like, well, I mean, you, you know, from the get-go, you know, a priest can't marry. Um, but um, I think it makes sense as a first-time director because you're like, then it's all on me <laughs> and everything's on me. And if, if this doesn't do well, <laughs> I don't know if he was thinking this, then I can blame it on Stiller or some, or I can blame it on someone else. Um, but just also, like, we haven't talked about just the amazing ensemble cast, Eli Wallach um, yeah. as the senior rabbi. Um, and the foreman uh, on the other side. Yes, so random. Um and uh and then obviously Anne Bancroft. Um it it's it <laughs> I guess that's I'm trying to think of the other roles, Jenna Alfman. Um oh uh Lisa Edelstein as the yeah. uh, my sister and I still watch her scenes from that movie just because they're hilarious. Um she gave a, it. Yeah, she was really yeah. she was willing to sort of she and Rena Sofer both have that ability to embody yes. a particular stereotype that the movie itself is uncomfortable with? Like you get the feeling that they're there to show us that this isn't what he wants. It's interesting because the one qualm I have with the movie is that the Jewish female characters aren't fully realized. You know, the the Judaism of it all and the Jewishness of it all felt so important to me as a kid to Mm -hmm. see regular people going to shul, you know, or, and it not having to be fiddler on the roof or whatever it is. Um, but Lisa Edelstein's character definitely represents this sort of like pushy, annoying, um, you know, like needy, princessy, spoiled um, Jewish girl, which sucks. But I mean, she's also hilarious um, and it works. And um, but and then Rena Sofer, or is it Sofer or Sofer? Um, no, it could be Sofer. I thought it was Sofer, but I, I may well be Sofer. wrong. <laughs> whatever it is, I think Rena Sofer embodies a sort of um, exception to the rule of like the like very refined Jewish woman. Um, and uh, pretty much everyone else that the mothers are trying to push onto him, you know, at the shul are more of the Jewish stereotypes of, of female characters. So, you know, that's a bummer. But I'll, but ultimately, it's my one qualm with the representation of the film. Um, uh but yeah, but but they do still such a good job, Lisa Edelstein and, and Rena Sofer, of making those characters fully realized. Um, yeah, my excuse, my headcanon is that we're seeing them through Jake's eyes and he just wants someone else. Like that. Yeah. That's it's not an it excuse, really. It's not, I mean... It's how you make it make sense in the moment. Yeah, I think it's just the easy way. I don't even think that it's like um, they purposely made these women unlikable. I think it's just the easy stereotypical way of writing female characters, um, Jewish female characters. Uh, yeah, that's probably is the instinct and you have to sort of step back. And if you want to go beyond that, go, wait, how am I writing these characters? Like, are they real? Are they not? Um, so I don't even put it, put it against the screenwriter. I think it's probably just the instinct. Um, but the least resistance kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. You're like, well, he, he's obviously not going to end up with one of these. So they don't have to be, they're not important characters. So let's just, you know, make them what they serve in the movie uh, and keep going. Uh, I do, I just, I do love though the like Jewish community vibes of the film. Like when he runs into uh, them at the movie theater and pretends to be seeing another movie and 
the Holland Taylor character is also incredible. Rena Sofer's character's mom yeah. asks Anna what her last name is. And she says, Riley. And she goes, oh, Riley. And the code is like, you're not Jewish. Um, and then they have to sit in a movie theater together. Um, I don't know. The, my thoughts are all over the place here. But I think um, I, it, the movie also kind of predates a moment in Judaism where like, I do feel like so many reform shuls now are trying like new things and trying to like be more political or be less or do this or try that. And seeing his character trying so hard to make their synagogue modern and hip and cool and him struggling against the board and, um, you know, uh, all of their traditions and their sort of like um, just uh, just their stiffness. Um I think it's cool to see because I feel like that's a sort of window into organized religion that um, a lot of people have questions about. A lot of people's, I think, um, criticism of organized religion is that they haven't caught up with the times and seeing sort of the inner workings of how that goes down and why that is the way it is, um, I think is important. And I really appreciate that about the movie too. Yeah, it gets something about um, Jewish identity, right? In, in America and Canada as well, where, you know, I grew up, uh, I was I, I went to a Jewish day school as a kid. I grew up surrounded by reminders of Judaism. Uh, mm-hmm. and I don't really have any feel for the religion. I rejected it pretty young. Um, but it's rare to see a film that engages with religion as a cultural facet that isn't toxic, right? Mm-hmm. Or negative mm-hmm. that that both Catholicism and Judaism are presented here as something that people cling to uh, for support, for actual, yeah. for actual enlightenment and, and support and encouragement in their own lives. And, you know, the questions people ask Jake aren't stupid the way they mm-hmm. usually are in these movies where someone comes up and they're like, oh, I don't know what to do about this. It's a job thing. And the answer is just, well, what do you think? You like, it's, they're not using yeah. them as therapists. They're using them as actual spiritual advisors, yes. which you don't see a lot of in movies because movies generally back away pretty quickly from any suggestion that might alienate the larger yeah. fan base, the larger audience, right? Like, and and this kind of gets us to Shiva Baby, where the 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 religious texture of the day is kind of irrelevant, right? You don't explore the rituals or the dovening. It's it's there. It's always in the background. And the signifiers. We talked about this months ago. The signifiers are scarily dead on. But the sense that the religion, like in 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 keeping the faith, there is the only time religion feels like a barrier is when it's a barrier to the individual character's happiness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's also something that shows up in Shiva Baby, right? Because queer characters have a harder time of it, even in the most accepting of synagogues, uh, or not queer characters, queer people. The reality of it is that it's still something that the, the idea of religious faith resists. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so much of, of Shiva Baby is about someone who cannot be her authentic self in any situation. And she keeps inventing new versions of her persona in order to make it possible to endure this day. And that's kind of the same thing that keeping the faith is about. Ultimately, it's about how you harmonize who you are with what you want to believe. Well, thank you for that comparison. Um, That's so beautiful. It's so true. He's got his private life and his public life. And that's sort of the, the biggest fight that he has with the Jenna Elfman character um, where he's talking about what people think of him and what it would mean and what it would look like. And um, yeah, that's such a good point. And and what you said just before of, you're so right. If you see movies about religion, the questions are like, yeah, it's like a therapist. It's like, 
you know, going to just like, I'm watching the Sopranos now and them just being like, wow, I'm going through this and this is happening. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's also, yeah, you're right. It's either, or we just don't see it, you know, sort of those specific questions, but that's, that is, it is positive. There is no negativity. There is no, you're so right. It's only an issue in the plot of the movie of the character getting to their goal. Um, but other than that, there's no negativity surrounding the, the, the Jewishness or, or, or the Catholicism, I think. And usually religion is not portrayed well, or it's, it's portrayed as an issue in terms of someone, uh, you know, um, not being able to come out or whatever the situation is. Um, but I appreciate that comparison. That's really nice. Um, yeah. Uh, whether, whether the community is accepting or not just conceptually religion or a religious traditional family, cultural community, whatever it is, um, does not, um, suggest an open inviting environment for uh, a queer person. So, or a person just trying to figure out their life and do something different. Um, even if a community is accepting of uh, queerness or, or LGBTQIA people, et cetera, the idea historically of a religious community or any sort of culturally religious community um, is not inviting of queer identity or just anyone trying to go against the grain of what most people do in that community in terms of career, in terms of romantic life, et cetera. Kind of like the way they rhyme with each other, your film and, and Norton's film. So with any luck, we'll get people to watch both of them this week. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I do hope more people discover Keeping the Faith that haven't seen it. I just think it's such a gem and um, one that I wish was celebrated more. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully people see my movie. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> My thanks to Emma Seligman, whose first feature, Shiva Baby, is available to rent right now at Digital Tiff Bell Lightbox and coming to all VOD platforms this Friday, April 2nd. It's good. You should watch it. Emma's not on Twitter, but you can find Keeping the Faith on DVD from Touchstone Home Video. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play, and it's only a matter of time before it turns up on Disney+. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days. In fact, if you look up episode 63 of Now What, you'll find me talking to Emma about her experiences getting Shiva Baby into film festivals during the pandemic. I also write the weekly Now streaming newsletter, to which you can subscribe at NowToronto.substack.com. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. I'm really enjoying How to Dog, for obvious reasons. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.